Hello and welcome to Tactics and Operations, the official podcast of the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. I'm your host, Major Rob Malcolm. Please note, all of the opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect those of McTogg, MAGTAF-TC, the U.S. Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Boxing. Chess. Two wrestlers in the dark. Military theorists have always used sports and games to illustrate their arguments. For Clausewitz, poker most resembled warfare, but for me, it's American football. Today we're talking to someone who puts maneuver warfare into practice on a daily basis on the gridiron. He has taught in the classroom and coached football for over 40 years. He's a lifelong learner and a student of history. He also happens to be my father. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, we're very excited to have with us on the show today, Coach Mark Malcolm. Coach Malcolm has coached football at all levels from seventh grade up to high school varsity in positions from special teams to offensive coordinator to head coach. Coach Malcolm, welcome. Hi, good to be here. So I want to jump right into the discussion today surrounding the overlap or intersections between the Marine Corps' doctrinal philosophy of maneuver warfare and the game we know as American football. Now, you've read MCDP-1 Warfighting, have you not? I did. I mean, I, I've reread parts of it in the last month or so, but I, I read it, God, some years ago. And uh, in in the, the search always to find, you know, new ideas that would inform what we're trying to do. And what did you take away from it? Well, the, I mean, the, the biggest things for me, well, obviously there's, and probably there's way too much talk about warfare in, in football. I mean, I realize, I mean, I, I'm, embarrassed talking to somebody who's actually in in the military in the, in those terms but uh going back at least to uh clark shaughnessy who was the head coach at the university of chicago when they had a very good football team so much of what he saw as speed and movement from world war ii have informed modern football uh you know whether it's the the pace of it or how you're trying to get more people to the point of attack than your your opponent can. Uh, but there, I, I do think there are a lot of overlaps. But one of the biggest things I know that struck me originally and then again in rereading it is the, the talk early on in the book about not, not just chance, but the fact that there are so many pieces going on that you cannot absolutely plan for. I mean, that you, you can't say to a certainty, this is the thing that's going to happen. And, and particularly coaching young people where, you know, they may or may not execute the thing that you have practiced over and over and over again. Those are, that's the thing that we deal with. Uh, I just, on a, on a, on a weekly basis is, how well we're able to uh, identify the chance elements in the game and how we're able to uh, to deal with those. So there's a high degree of uncertainty in yes. the game of football, and it requires a certain level of uh, ability to adapt in execution. Absolutely. So what are what are some ways that you have, as you've developed your program over the years, that you're able to adapt and and survive in that with that degree of uncertainty 
Well, again, we would like to be able to tip the the contest to the point where those elements of uncertainty work in in our favor. One of them is being a no huddle team from pretty far back. I mean, I, we were, I mean, a shotgun no huddle team largely in two thousand eight, long before. I mean, there were a handful of of schools that were doing this kind of stuff. Now it's pretty commonplace, but. Our ability to control the speed of the game by being no huddle has, has been a huge factor, I think, in our success. Again, if we're no huddle, the defense has to anticipate that we may go very fast. We don't really always have to go very fast. And in fact, I think in a lot of my career, we haven't had to, but because they have to be prepared for us to do that, that increases that element of uncertainty for them they have to be ready and on the line whereas my you know my pace is controlled by or my team's pace is controlled by us i think there are other things that we have done over the years where we try to attack defensive recognition of what we're doing uh, either by being very multiple um, lining up in a lot of different sets, uh, lining up in one thing and shifting to another or motioning to another so that the defense's time to react to that is, is limited. And I've been a, a huge proponent for many years of, at least in the passing game, doing a lot of route options where my players are reading what the defense is doing so that I might run the same play five or six times in a row, but it looks totally different to the defense because we're our, our routes are shaped by what it is that the defense does in reaction to them. Yeah, so I'm, I'm picking up a lot of parallels with maneuver warfare here. Uh, to go back to what you were saying about the no huddle offense and speed relative to your opponent, which MCDP1 and the rest of our doctrine calls tempo um, and mm-hmm. emphasizes that over just objective speed it's not always about just being fast but being fast relative to your opponent can you explain to some of our listeners who may not be familiar what is a no huddle offense well traditionally offenses have had some form of huddle every play in which the vast majority of the players and generally all the players gathered to do that seen a lot of pictures in the last couple of weeks because of the death of Lynn Dawson of the Chiefs who had an open kind of what they called choir huddle, which was an innovation even when it was done. But what we have done with the no huddle is we we just don't ever get to that position. It's funny, I might, I will I have to throw this in here that George Will has always said that Football has two of the worst elements of American culture, and it says it's violence punctuated by committee meetings. But we, we're trying to cut out some of the meetings and in, in the way that we do things. We're, a, we're lined up, ready to snap the ball, and then we have to have a way of communicating what we're going to do to our players without having had that meeting. And, I mean, over the years, we've evolved that. I mean, early on, uh, a lot of what we did uh, was driven by wristbands and signaling, and and eventually we went purely to signaling the things that we do. 
So, uh, you know, it's it doesn't look like a lot probably to people that are watching the game, but from a defensive standpoint, not having that mental break and defensive coaches having to signal what they're going to do in reaction to you at a much greater rate of speed is a huge factor in the game. Yeah, it sounds like by forcing the opponent to always have to be ready for whenever you're ready to start the play, at least while you're on offense, that you're able to maintain the initiative. Absolutely. Do you feel like that gives you uh, a sort of advantage in, in the moral dimension as well? I would say so because, I mean, just from a psychological standpoint, the amount of energy that's expended by the defense in readiness, you know, saps their energy, I think, as the game goes on. And, again, we're coaching young people whose ability to focus over time is limited. And you start to have breakdowns in that when you put people under pressure. And some of this, I mean, so how I feel about this, deal with this, comes from a long experience as a basketball coach, where, again, my philosophy was if we, we played full-court defense and pushed the ball up and down the court because we felt like as the game went on, playing at that pace started to cause fractures in the execution of our opponents. You know, we, we might press you for three quarters and you deal with it pretty well, and then in the fourth quarter, you know, have a bunch of steals. We find that true in football. That we're we're likely to gain a greater advantage as the game goes on because of the mental pressure as well as the physical pressure we're putting on you. So it's not just about having bigger, faster, stronger players. No, thank goodness, because we hadn't always had those, and uh, you know we've had we've been blessed to have a lot of great players. But I think this is the the kind of leveler of, of competition, uh, being able to, if in some ways, out-organize and out-prepare your opponent, gives us an opportunity where if this was purely a matter of strength or athletic ability, we might not be in the game. So the next thing you mentioned when we were talking about how you adapt and, and how you you know, how you cope with uh, some of the, the chaos and changing situation on the field. You talked about your players needing to be able to read the defense. And I, I, I assume there's some level of decision-making that they have the autonomy to be able to make um, because of their ability to do that. Is that, is that, that accurate? Yes, that's absolutely true. And that, that's not, um, they don't have unlimited options. But yes, they have some options on every one of those plays. And this is a thing I think you and I have talked about before is that I know people who are certain that there should be rules for everything that they do. So they can go back and analyze after it's over, did we perform according to this rule or not? But I I don't think that that's the reality of things that in the midst of the play and certainly just from what I know as a historian about warfare, that there are all sorts of gray areas where in reality, 
there's not a particular rule that holds that you're having to having to interpret events. So my players are taught to do that. Where somebody plays you, and in the and there's, of course, this is a three dimensional space here. But uh, are is there leverage inside or outside of me? Are they backed away from me, bailed away from me, or are they pressed up on me? As I reach a certain decision point, and I'll just I'm just going to pick a route and say on the the route I'm thinking of. Between five and eight yards, my guys have to have made a decision whether they are going to continue to go deep or or hitch up and come back toward the ball. And again, I mean, this is I find this has worked just as well with seventh graders as it did with varsity football players. If we if we teach it well enough and give them the parameters for which they can make the decisions then they're making decisions in real time in a very fluid situation where there's probably three different receivers who are doing this thing. So uh, I think I've, I probably even have talked about this before, but we were in a game last year where we were uh, in our two-minute game almost the whole fourth quarter, and I probably only ran three different plays. But to the defense, they look different because of, as you say, the autonomy of our kids to make those decisions. Awesome. So I think uh, for some of our listeners that may not be familiar, probably imagine you as the coach, you know, directing every action from the sidelines, calling every play and, and having everything under your control. And that's really not the way you have run your programs. No, although you know, I, I, I think probably I tend to like all people to want to have everything under my control. I just, I just realized that that's not realistic and that, again, we present a totally different picture to the defense when they have to defeat the combined decision-making of my players rather than just have to figure out what I'm going to do next. And so you talked about only running a few plays but having lots of variations and the execution of those variations being decentralized and uh, to, to some extent up to your players on the field to react as they see the situation forming. Are there any other advantages in keeping your playbook relatively small? Well, yes. I mean, I, and I probably haven't always kept it as small as I should have because there's that, that feeling that you know, I don't want to be under pressure and not have exactly the right play that I want to call. But just as an example, there's a oh a particular construct where you have three receivers and basically they are at different levels on the field. So like the layers of a cake here. And there are times when I've worked with people where we, and I say we, had probably three or four different variations of that. And then thinking about it later, when, when we talk, I think we decided that we were better off getting all the repetitions of one variation of that rather than, what, you know, 25% of the repetitions in different forms of it. And that doesn't take away those options that we were talking about earlier because a lot of that stuff is either or stuff. That stuff's re- relatively easy to, 
teach as long as people are willing to do that. I just think there's a lack of willingness on the part of people to do that. And of course, I mean, I, I think it's a human trait that we would like to be able to control everything around us, uh, even though that might not be better for us. Okay, so keeping the playbook relatively small also allows you to get more repetitions in practice. Yes. So what advice would you give, because this is a, I think this is absolutely something that we as pra military practitioners struggle with as well, like you said, wanting to have that play, that, that perfect play for every situation would result in an overbloated playbook what advice would you give to someone to keep from falling prey to that urge? You know, the, the guy that's going to bring every piece of gear he owns in his pack right. and end up with a 70 pound pack or, uh, right. or, you know, or the platoon commander that wants, has only two weeks to train, but is going to try every single variation of every, you know, every right. form of maneuver. Well, I mean, I just, again, I, I see the, the, visceral desire on the part of people to have everything covered like that. I know when I, when I was a young coach, I've heard a number of pretty good coaches say, for every play that you have, you should be able to run it in both directions, and you should have a play-action pass and a screenplay off of every play. And as I went along and developed some experience, I thought, my God, how long do these people have to practice? Because, guy, and I don't think this is any secret to people who've seen seen us play, we don't even run every play that we run in both directions. I mean, I don't, I don't care that the defense knows that. I mean, they have to react to what they see as much as they react to their statistics or whatever they think of, of how we're going to run things. But famous basketball coach said. The one thing we have in common with all of our opponents is time. So how we use it, and hopefully the excellent way we use it and they don't, is our real advantage. So yeah, what, to, what to choose to work on and what not to, and you know, having finite time limits. I mean, you know this, I have a clock in practice, and the, the temptation is always, well, let's run that play one more time until we get this, and I don't do that in practice. When we get to the end of the time segment, I expect my staff to rotate because it makes the team more conscious of time, and you know, I'm just kind of a time guy myself, so I mean, I, I want the practice to go according to that, and I will say to my coaches, if you didn't get it in your five-minute period today, make sure it happens tomorrow. But do do a better job of planning. Okay, this is hmm. the tighter the time constrictions, the better prepared you have to be. But again, you don't have an endless amount of time, and and I would I would rather be really good at those uh, you know essential boiled down things that we have to be able to do than be able to have a reaction that's been practiced for every event that could possibly happen. It's a, a great lesson and very applicable to the military practitioner as well, you know, especially in the Marine Corps. When you look at the amount of time you actually have in a workup, 
you don't realistically have enough days, enough training hours to get to everything you would like to get to. So really, fo- you, you have to focus on the priorities. And sometimes in, in this respect, less is more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to turn now from the discussion so far has been kind of about the way you see the offense, the way you've run offense in your programs. I want to talk a little bit about preparation for games. When and how is your plan for the upcoming game formed? Is it weeks in advance? Is it the week of? Some of that depends on whether we've played these people before and particularly whether we've played those people with the same coaches before. Because to some degree, I mean, I know in advance, you know, what we can expect out of those. So to some degree, yes, we're planning ahead when we have that situation. Obviously, that doesn't happen all the time. And uh, generally, we don't have film of our opponent until the Saturday morning after a Friday game. Uh, so typically, I mean, what I, what I did as a head coach at Shelton was our, our guys came in. Usually I came in 7.30 or 8. I asked the staff to be there at 9. They came in and watched the film and, and did some form of evaluation. I, I hesitate to call that grading because I think there's some disadvantages to giving an actual numerical grade as we evaluate those players, but they've done that, and then we start to look at the film, and since I had essentially the same offensive staff at Shelton for five years, Marco Rivera, the offensive line coach and the assistant head coach, and Philip Carroll, the quarterback coach and and offensive coordinator, and I would sit in the room and watch film by ourselves and just make notes, and, you know, if we saw something that you know, we thought it was noteworthy, we would say something, but we had done it together for so long that we really didn't have to do a lot of talking about it. I think as time has passed, the offense that I run is more adaptable to almost everything that I see defensively so that I don't have to make a lot of changes based on your defense. So I'm looking more at personnel things when I'm watching the film. I want to know, obviously, who your best defender is. I mean, if somebody's a great pass rusher and we may have to treat them differently, we need to know that stuff and make note of it. But that's the bigger part of planning. I mean, the the things that are, I think, well, this is something that I think probably applies to you guys. The things that we are best at, I am not going to let somebody take away from us. I'm not going to say, oh, well, we're not going to run why shallow because these guys so-and-so. No, why shallow is what we do, and we're going to run that. And I'm just not going to allow that to be taken away from us before the game. We get the ball game, and you're great at stopping it. We may do something different. But planning-wise... I'm focused on two or three kind of small aspects of what you do. And again, I, Philip and Marco and I worked together for so long, it was almost like we didn't even have to say that to each other. We had like a Vulcan mind meld going so that we, we didn't have to do that. 
Yeah. The team cognition or the, the shared understanding that you're able to build yes. from working together. Absolutely. So I, you, and you, I, I miss that in working with those guys because even in the games, that kind of stuff, we just all saw the game the same. Absolutely. That's a powerful tool. You've said that good teams will try to take away what you do best. How do you assess what the opposing team does best? Again, that's a kind of, I mean, some of that's statistical. I mean, we can just look at the film that we have and see what we think their best play is. And from my standpoint, who their best defender is. I'm going to say we hadn't run into that many people that we said, well, we're just not going to throw at that guy or but we're not going to run at that guy. Usually we figure out something in our scheme that allows us to be successful in still attacking that person. And I think we're usually pretty accurate. I will tell you there's some tendency on the part of coaches because what they do is scheme every week that when we're all together in the film room, the tendency is to say, okay, these guys are, even though these guys are really good, we're going to scheme them up so that we're going to do so-and-so, so-and-so. And I can think of, you know, playoff games where you're playing against, you know, everybody you play in the playoffs is good. I mean, that's just the nature of it. And uh, I think of a couple of situations, uh, not so much at Shelton, but at other places where when we got on the field and you actually saw these guys, you thought, well, I don't know about our scheme. <laughs> may not, you know, that that 6'5 cornerback that we were thinking that we were going to throw at a lot, we might not want to do that in, in <laughs> actuality. But uh, So there's some, I don't know whether that's uh, us just convincing ourselves that, that we can make that work, but there is some, uh, you know, slap in the face with the reality sometimes when you get on the actual field. Yeah, absolutely. That's another thing that that's definitely applicable in my world as well. The you know, believing your own myths too much or convincing yeah. yourself that, that you can just take away that center of gravity. Um, yeah. Did you find any techniques, any specific techniques that were useful in sort of mitigating those sort of assumptions that might plague your staff? I love your description of that as, as believing in your own myths. I just think we need to be really hard-edged about not allowing ourselves to tell ourselves those stories. You know, there are times when things are not going well and you're kind of melting down over the headphones and it's easy to get into that kind of uh, downward spiral where we feel like everything's against us and the refs are picking on us and this kind of stuff. And you just can't allow that to happen. I mean, you... To some extent, that God, that World War II story, the you know the shut up and die like an aviator thing. I don't I don't want a bunch of extra chatter on the headphones. I, I want us to, I want us to cut to the chase and do the stuff that's actual football stuff. You know, feeling sorry for ourselves or feeling like we're invincible just because we're us. That's not that's really not very useful in the actual ball game. So as you are aware that your opponents are also, you know, trying to assess what you do best and do what they can to take that away from you, do you deliberately attempt to complicate their scouting efforts? Like when you're aware that uh, that they're scouting you, is there anything you do to try to prevent them from assessing your strengths? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't know whether it keeps them from assessing my strengths, 
but I tried to add to the load that they have during the week by running things that may not make any difference to us, a different formation, uh, receivers that are stacked or they're wider or tighter than normal, you know, a different shift. Sometimes a, a trick play that took me very little time to put in, but that I know that they're going to have to devote time to because it is always difficult for your opponent to replicate what you do at actual speed. And I think about when you know, I was at Apollo and we were playing those great Lake Highlands and Forest Meadow wishbone teams, we could simulate what they did in practice, but you couldn't simulate their athletes and the speed with which they could do it. So there was always some slippage where, you know, I had to tell my guys, it's going to take us three, four, maybe five or six minutes into the game to catch up with the actual game speed of that. And you just need to know that and not be intimidated by it. You know what they're doing. We just have to catch up to how well they're able to do it in the course of the game because they were all, they were really, really good. But I think for the most part, we were able to do that. Uh, again, Yes, you do some things just because I do some things just because I know my opponent is going to have to practice it. Yeah, we call that complicating the adversary's calculus. Mm. A lot of discussions around that with upcoming concepts for the Marine Corps, like stand-in forces. So let's talk now. We've talked a little bit about your preparation. What is your post-game routine like? Well, again, one of the reasons I usually, you know, at least when I was the head coach, would get to the office early and so I, I could watch the film and make notes about things that might not be technical things but things that we needed to change about the way the game went even uh, oh little things did we did we do the discipline things did our guys stay behind the restraining line they're kids and they're constantly pushing forward you're having to make them back up but again, those kind of detailed things I want to make a list of and talk about, you know, and I, I'm going to go back to whatever the previous Monday was and make notes about that. So there's things that I'm, I'm trying to do just post game that don't necessarily have to do with how the game was played. But then, I mean, I want to watch the film and usually. Uh, you know, I'm going to watch the whole thing, but there are particular plays that I want to go back and see. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I have a pretty pretty good memory for that kind of stuff. I mean, there are a handful that I'm going to say, okay, well, I want to see why this worked or why it didn't work on film. And, of course, I mean, we're, we're lucky to have the resources of film. Remember that I, mean, I started in this business when no junior high would have had film at all. The high schools would have had would have had 16 millimeter rush printed film, which looked like you were watching it through a rainstorm. I'll never forget the sound of those projectors running backwards and forwards. And I mean, in those days, there was always somebody that could like splice together film in the dark because they, it was easier then. But the resource that we have in being able to watch good film today, and of course today technology is such that it's, it's streaming seamlessly on your phone today. It's, it's incredible to be able to see that. And now it's available to everybody. And so anybody who's got the wherewithal to, to take film 
has that as a teaching tool. So in, in the finite amount of time, you know, especially the standard being, you know, one week between games, and I'm sure sometimes you have more than that, but when you only have that one week, I mean, how important is it to review the past game versus preparing for the next game? I mean, how do you divide that time? Wow, that's a great question because I think that varies uh, with the experience of your staff and with each particular team and really with how the game went, how much time you need to spend even with the team deconstructing that game. Now today, again, that film's available to the kids during the week if they're on you know, one of these video programs. I mean, they can watch it anytime. So we've become much better at picking out, you know, these 10 plays we're going to talk about. This should have been done. This, this, the reason this was not successful is because we didn't execute this portion of it. There are times when a game was so lacking in productivity that you just don't even watch it with the team the next week. And I, I'll tell the coaches, if you have time to look back during the week, great, but we need to push forward. You know, there's essentially nothing that we did in the game that, that I feel like we're going to get some good out of. So that, that varies, but that's a great question because no matter how good or bad it was, it's only useful to you now in that it informs how you're going to do this next week. So. I mean, if I, if I have to choose in the balance of time, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to prepare for the, for the next game. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, interesting and somewhat surprising that there are times when you just find that, that there's, there's not enough value in dwelling on this past game. And, you know, while we, especially here at McTogg, emphasize the importance of reflection on our experiences in order to learn. We talk a lot about conducting after-action reviews. That's that's maybe something that we don't emphasize enough, is you also have to consider what was the value of this experience. And not every experience is valuable, or at least not to the same degree. So you don't want a one-size-fits-all where each and every training evolution, you know, we're going to spend two weeks doing our after action reviews, you know, some of them that may not be productive. And uh, that's the kind of, you know, the kind of judgment call that you have to make. Totally agree. So I want to shift now to talking about culture. And this is something that not, not only have you talked a lot about over the years, but you've written about as well. For the listeners, the most time you spent at one place was at Apollo Junior High. Yes. Coming out of there with, I think, a, a two-to-one win-to-loss ratio, you had a boss once say something to the effect of, you know, Apollo has won games it should not have. And what did he mean by that, and do you agree? Well, I mean, yes, I, I agree that if you evaluated talent on paper, or the sheer number of people that we had to choose from compared to some of the people we played. Yes, I would say we won games that you would not have predicted us to win. I think we got very good at being better prepared lots of times than the people we were going to play. Again, at the junior high level, and I hate to use that term because it's, it's, it's not a level so much as just a matter of resources. The junior high doesn't have 
as big a staff. They don't get as good a film. Uh, for instance, I mean, you're lucky if a parent films the junior high game at the high school, you probably got a tight view, a wide view, and a, an end zone view of every play. And uh, again, you have a, a bigger weight program, a bigger weight room. I mean, there's just a lot of things that go along with that. But at the junior high level, the people that maximize those those aspects of organization are just going to be more successful. And uh, again, I mean, there, we were playing Duncanville and Mesquite, and uh, well, we, we played the Lake Highlands Freshman Center when they had 900 boys and girls in their school, and you know, we had 300 uh, freshmen at Apollo. So, I mean, I mean they were three times our size, and, uh, you know, I've God, they never lose to them. We have we played one spectacularly violent game in the hitting wise uh, that was a seven all tie, but we we were very successful against them considering that they had a great coaching staff and that they had a lot of good players. So I mean I think I think there's some truth in that and something that I always like that David Collins said in Good to Great is talking about getting the flywheel turning so that even when we didn't have our best teams, that our teams believed that they were going to win because they were, they were Apollo Junior High. And they, they followed those people that went before them. And I think one of the things we did a good job at, about was telling the stories of those past guys. My cousin, Clark Malcolm, is basically the writer-editor of Max Dupree's leadership books, but I just one of the things that Max Dupree really believed in was good organizations tell stories. That is, they, they, they keep, oh, I guess you want to say, reigniting that culture by bringing up those past successes and the people that were heroic in their past. And I think we did that really, really well. And we just got, I think we fell into this, but we made a huge thing when people would come back to see us. Uh, and I used to tell my kids this. I said, if you do what we ask while you're here, when you need me, I'll be there. And when you come back here, I mean, you'll always have a home. So, I mean, you've seen us do it before. But we'd be in the middle of practice. If somebody came back that was a former player, we stopped what we were doing to introduce them and to laud them and you know invite them to be there with us. And uh, I think out of that has come the fact that, you know, I'm, you know, this is not about me. It's about the program that I'm still connected with so many of those young people because of the culture that we built. That's really interesting. That's definitely something that I think we can implement within the Marine Corps, especially at the battalion and regimental levels, to increase the effect of that culture and that winning attitude. Safe to say that that expectation of winning, that expectation of success had had effects over and above the specific talent or strength, uh, speed of your players at Apollo. But you also have coached at places that, at least when you arrived, didn't have that expectation of winning. What are some things that helped you develop that? create that where there there was no expectation or in fact there was an expectation of losing well that i mean that is that is the question 
in in the coaching business at least is you know theoretically you're brought in to to make those changes and uh, I think one thing that helps is if you've done it somewhere before there's some degree of you just you know what has worked and what hasn't and it's it's so easy to to think if I get the right machine or I get the right t-shirt or if I do the haka dance and all of a sudden I'm going to be I'm going to be doing this so if I have a sign that says play like a champion today like Notre Dame does and all my guys touch it before they go on the field they're going to play like Notre Dame and I, I just I'm just here to tell you that none of that is true and all those things are difficult to force and create culture. To some extent, you have to arrive at that organically. And this is going to sound like it's in opposition to this, but I think you have to uh, identify, if you can, what some of the reasons for their lack of success have been in the past. And I think in a lot of cases, it is what psychologists call learned failure. They, they're people that have not had success and they're waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time. The first time something bad happens on the, on the field or in practice, they crater. They haven't developed as a cultural thing that kind of grittiness where you overcome the obstacle. I used to say a lot when we were building the program, how big an obstacle would it take to stop you? You know, for some people, it takes nothing. There's a piece of paper on the floor in front of them they can't get over. It. You know, for other people, something really has to be large to stop them. And I said, that's the people we want here. But at Shelton, I chose a motto right at the very beginning that's a quote from Hal Mummy, the, basically the inventor of the air raid offense. He says, play the next play. You know, whatever happened, you have got to be able to learn from that, but not be pigeonholed by it, not be held back by it. You know, you have to live in the here and now and go on to play the next thing. And we just preach that. And we got better and better at it. We had success that they had never had before. I believe I'm the only football coach in Shelton's football history that has a winning record. And we never got to quite the same Apollo level of flywheel turning. But I am very proud of what we did. And most of it was because of creating that, that different culture. Yeah, I think about that quote a lot, play the next play. And something your friend, I think Coach Boone, said that it's not the first mistake, yeah. but it's the second mistake that kills you. Absolutely. And I think about those two quotes a lot in relation to what I do and that the, the dwelling on that first mistake is what takes your head out of the game and causes you to make that second mistake, which is actually yes. the fatal one. Yes, absolutely. All right. So in our last few minutes, I want to shift one last time to talking about how the way I see it, especially at the high school level where you have a large staff, is somewhat analogous to command of a unit with a staff, so battalion, regiment, and on up. So let me ask, what was it like moving from 
Apollo, where you had one assistant, up to the high school where you, you started as an assistant, moved up to offensive coordinator, and ultimately head coach? Well, I think the tendency is, to since you know what it is you're trying to accomplish, to want to do everything yourself. And I just think that's such a terrible waste of manpower. One of the cups, the coffee mugs that's on my desk right here is my Nimitz cup from the Nimitz Museum. And basically what it says about leadership is that you just pick good people and then give them the opportunity to, to do well. So, you know, I would say I, I had, I have been blessed always to have incredible people around me and they've made me better and they are the really the people who have made that flywheel turn. So I've had to work to make sure that I'm giving some degree of ownership to those people, even if that means that they're going to, in my view, are going to make some mistakes. I mean, I can guide them when that happens. But uh, getting to see, and, and I'm getting to do it right this second because I have such an amazing staff at this place, with special teams, I've given everybody uh, a particular phase, and I, you know, I gave them resources, but I didn't tell them how I wanted it to be taught. I said, "Okay, here's your day. You're, we're doing today. We're doing punt, kick, return, and man, these guys jump out there and they're teaching it and they're personnelling it because they have ownership of it, and I mean, I think it means something to them that I have the faith in them to let them do their job. I'm not." looking over their shoulder all the time. And I think I became a better coach by being able to do that. Again, the tendency is to want to do it all. And even at Shelton, the first year as a head coach, I probably did more of that than I should have. But, you know, I, I think using, learning to use that resource of having good people and letting them rock and roll with what they do is, and that's the whole deal. At the battalion level, I've seen good and bad examples of this. I've seen battalion commanders try to do everything themselves. And while they, they may be on a good day good at most of those things, certainly after several days in the field fighting a thinking enemy, say, at, at MWX, your capacity is, is pretty diminished. And so if you're not making use of all those talented people around you, you're bound to fail. So... My advice in that case was to think about what are the things only you can do? And so my mm. question is, when you're the head coach, what are the things that only you can do? What are the well, things think, that you personally do versus what you supervise your assistants doing? Okay. Well, I think one of those is having the big picture of how you want things to go, how much time do a lot to different things, because you'll find the coordinators are, of course, they always want more time for their part. And if they're any good, they're willing to fight about it. I mean, fight for that. I mean, not fight each other, but fight me about the time limitations. And I have to maintain the big picture of it. I know what we need to accomplish. And I'll have to say, you know, the coordinator come to me and say, hey, I, I would like more time for this thing. And I'll have to say, Tell me what what you're going to give up that you're doing right this minute, okay? Because 
I can't create time. All I can do is move things around within the time. And that's, that's not always the answer that they want to hear. In fact, I'm going to say generally is not the answer <laughs> they want to hear. But somebody has to be the, the referee in that thing. And you maintaining the big picture, I think, is maybe the thing of things that you do as the boss that, that it's very difficult for anybody else to do. Well, it's just not their job to do that. I mean, they, they should be fiercely desiring to have the best defense or the best offense or the best special teams. They all want the time. They wouldn't be very good if they didn't. It's your job to make sure that the big picture is served and that the what's best for the team gets done in all of that. Awesome. And so as the head coach at the various levels that you've coached at, what's the balance between how much time you spend mentoring a player versus you know, mentoring one of your subordinates, one of your assistant coaches? Well, I have continued to always be a position coach. So I have a, I have always had a group of players that I was in direct contact with in practice. And that's a, I mean, that's a personal choice. There are some coaches that have more of a CEO model and essentially they coach coaches I think I've been well served to do both of them, but I, I think in my position, I'm well served by being conscious of continuing to mentor coaches. And, you know, that includes what are their hopes and dreams. I mean, it's doubtful that their ultimate desire is to be my assistant the rest of their life. A lot of them want to be something. They want to be a head coach. They want to be a coordinator if they're not. And, giving them opportunities, I mean, identifying their talent and their desires and giving them opportunities to work toward those, that's part of what a good leader is doing. I mean, they're developing other leaders. And, I mean, that's true of how we deal with our players. I mean, I, I always tell my coaches, I mean, we can't say we're building leaders and, you know, have captains and have, you know, special teams captains and that kind of stuff and then not ever let them make any decisions. So they can see through that. I mean, nobody has a better you know, bull meter than a kid who's being taught. And they, hmm. they see through that. So, you know, you want people to be better at what they do. You have to let them do it. And you have to, if anything, give them opportunities to exercise their leadership and their decision making. So that's a great segue as we come to the end of our time here to ask one final question that I think, kind of pulls together the different topics we've talked about between tactics, uh, preparation, culture, and your role as something analogous to the commander. And that is, when you've talked about giving that autonomy, whether it's in the game when, say, a receiver reads the defense and, and has some, some autonomy in the route he chooses to run, or in practice with one of your assistants, how do you deal with it when they make a mistake? Well, I would say when I was younger, I probably didn't deal with it nearly as well as I should have. It took me a long time to reach the point where I was could understand that not everybody that I was going to deal with is quite as driven about that kind of thing as I am. You know, where I was constantly disappointed at people who, who weren't as driven by that. But I think what you, what I 
hope I have evolved to is that when when we have that, every one of those things is a teachable moment. I mean, I want to be able to say, and that, that sounds really trite. I, I hate to use an educational shtick like that, but it's true. You, you'd be able to say, what did you see? Okay. Why did we make the decision that we made? And sometimes they have no idea. And, the, and that in itself is teaching them something. So, well, we have keys. We should say, okay, my man, my man bailed off of me. Why did you keep running? Why did you help him cover you? You need to see that. Or if it's a coach that's, uh, you know, made a tactical decision uh, that, that doesn't work. We got a two point, two point conversion somewhere else and then we squandered that that extra point lead later on because we just weren't thinking about it, you need to point that out to them. So, well, we had this, we had the bump on these people and we threw it away by not being very analytical about it. But hopefully that means next time they, they get that fixed. And again, I feel, I feel like I've gotten better at that. Well, thank you for that answer. So we're about to the end of our time here. If any of our listeners are interested in learning more about your program, the things that you've done, and some of your thoughts about the game, where can they go to learn more? Well, the, hopefully their best resources. Uh, I have a website, coachmalcolm.com. has some good video. It has all the, the published articles that I've put out. You know, some of those are technical things, but a lot of them are philosophical things. And they can reach me through the website too. Again, always glad to answer questions. I mean, I have found this fascinating in analyzing, you know, watching your career and how those things, these, these ideas overlap has been fascinating all, all through this. Awesome. Well, coach, thanks for joining us and I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tactics and Operations. As part of Marine Air Ground Task Force Training Command, Marine Air Ground Combat Center 29 Palms, McTogg supports the Marine Corps ground combat element and the Fleet and Marine Force as a whole through the delivery of advanced individual and collective training. If you would like to know more about the great things going on at McTogg, you can find us on social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. Until next time.